If you have a Bible, open up to uh, Ecclesiastes. We're in chapter 9. We're almost done with this study, which I'm not sure if I'm happy or sad about it. This is a hard book. It's been a tough one. And this section that we're in today in chapter 9 is is a difficult section. What, what's uh, coming down the pike for the rest of the summer? So I'll finish up Ecclesiastes next week. And then the week after the what will be the the Navajo report, and week after is going to be fun. It's going to be kind of a missions focus, and so you want to come back and and listen to that. And then the last week of July and a number of Sundays in August, uh, it's going to be kind of like a I don't know how to describe it, like a like a kid focused sermons. I did this last year in August, mostly to give our Sunday school teachers and children's ministry director a, a month off. But mostly it was just so that I could uh, goof off more up here. Uh, so every month at Woodland Christian School, I do chapels and I get to like do some sort of weird object lesson and and teach a Bible lesson and it's and it's fun. And about this time in the year, I start to get I, I start to miss it a little bit. Like I, cause it's been a couple months now and I, and I, so it really helps to tide me over and I get to have kids come up and help me with, uh, my sermons and it's super fun and I, I had a great time with it last year. I don't know what you guys thought. Hopefully you liked it, <laughs> but I enjoyed it and I think the kids did. So we're going to do that, uh, coming up in a couple weeks and I already have, oh, some fun things. I can't wait. <laughs> anyway. So open up to uh, Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 9. Uh, the, the Bible, and, and really this book of the Bible in particular, is, is all about wrestling with some really difficult questions. It, it's, it's designed to help us find some answers to some of those most important questions that we could ask as human beings. Like, why, why are we here? How did we, how did we get here even? Why are things so messed up where we are? And how are we supposed to live? And how do we treat others? And, and who is God? And what is God like? And how can we know Him? Maybe the biggest one that we wrestle with is what happens to us when we die? What's coming next? It's such an important question. What, what happens when we die? Some say that when we die and breathe our last breath, our existence is over. That's it. Nothing else. Your thoughts and your emotions and your personality and, and all the things that make you you are just these chemical reactions that are tied to our physical body. And once our physical body is dead, then we're gone. There's no spirit. There's no soul. There's no, there's no immaterial part of us that lives on past death. That view of the afterlife is particularly bleak. I mean, if that's true, and especially according to our study here in Ecclesiastes, then nothing matters. There is no meaning. There's no hope. There's nothing left in this life but that, that foolish, wasteful search for pleasure. Might as well just eat, drink, and be merry because we're just going to die and then it's over. Who cares? Well, I think, I think on a deep level, we understand that there is more. I think even people like my, like my atheist barber understands that there's an eternity, even though he denies it. I think the only reason that he denies it is because he doesn't want to be held accountable to God or anything else. But I, I firmly agree with the preacher of Ecclesiastes when he says that God has put eternity in our hearts. 
He's made us for eternity. And we long for some kind of eternity. We long for there to be some part of us that continues on even after we're gone. In the Old Testament, that question of what happens to us when we die isn't really answered very well. Most of the time, they talk about God's blessings as it pertains to this life. Good crops and a long life and a promised land and lots of descendants. But, but what about when we die? And because, I think because the, the preacher of Ecclesiastes is searching for meaning and for answers, he wrestles with that question of eternity maybe more than any other Old Testament writer. But even so, his knowledge of what's to come is limited. And so he wrestles with eternity. If we look back, we see he's already already been dealing with it, already been asking some questions, already been wrestling. And in 3.11, he says those words, he has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from beginning even to the end. He says in 3.19, for the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath. There's no advantage for man over beasts. For all is vanity. All go to the same place. All came from dust and all return to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of beast descends downward to the earth. In chapter 5, he says, as, as he came naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He'll take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. Chapter 6, who knows what's good for man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life. He'll spend them like a shadow. Who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? He's struggling. He's wrestling. Because he knows that somehow meaning has to be connected with eternity because he's already discovered that it isn't found in all of these earthly pursuits. And really the, the culmination of his wrestling with eternity is found here in chapter 9. And I, I think as we read these, we, we see that these are words of like a frustrated philosopher. And, and he seems unhappy, discontent with his limited view of eternity. Look at what he says. Look at verse 1 in chapter 9. For I've taken all this to my heart and explain it that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. I mean, can you feel his struggle here? He knows that we're all in God's hand. He knows that. He knows that God's sovereign. He's already dealt with that in a bunch of places in this book. He knows that we can trust God. He knows that God's good, but what he doesn't know, not for sure, is what God's judgment will be in the end. Will it be love or hatred? And, and in, in the Old Testament, that language of love and hatred when talking about God refers to acceptance and rejection. Malachi, God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. 
One was accepted through his faith, and the other was rejected in unbelief. God holds us in his hands all the days of our lives, but who knows? Like, who really knows what's going to happen when we die? Will God accept us or reject us? He continues, it's the same for all. There's one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, and for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who's afraid to swear. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. Here, again, he restates this truth that he's already stated that both good and bad die. No one lives forever. Everybody ends up in the grave. And we can't really discern our standing before God based on the things that happen in this life because they're so unfair. Verse 4, he says, whoever is joined with all the living, there's hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. There's something hopeful about being alive. The living know they will die. But the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, their zeal have already perished. They'll no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman who you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you've labored under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors. Neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning nor favor to men of ability for time and chance overtake them all. Moreover, man does not know his time like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Oh, such a happy book. (laughs) I think Solomon's view here of eternity represents well the Old Testament struggle with what comes next. When you die, you go to Sheol. You go to the grave. And it's a place where everybody goes regardless of if you were good or bad. And it was assumed that Sheol was worse for bad people and better for good people, but there's really no developed teaching on it. Not until Jesus came around. 
In the Old Testament, we just have these, these little glimpses at what the afterlife might be like. Psalm 49 says, But man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. That sounds familiar. This is the way of those who are foolish and of those after them who approve their words. As sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. The upright shall rule over them in the morning. And their form shall be for Sheol to consume so that they have no habitation. Really, that word habitation means lofty dwelling place. He's saying people who are bad, they're going to go to the grave, but they don't have the same lofty dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for He will receive me. Well, that's way better news. Why didn't He say that in Ecclesiastes? And Job, who is wrestling with God, he seems to think that God has the ability to redeem him. He believes that he's going to get a chance to see God. There was at least some hope for people that, that if they were honorable and obedient to God in this life, that God would be faithful to them in the afterlife. Job says, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, He will take His stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, whom my eyes will see and not another, and my heart faints within me. Job believed he was going to get to see God. Maybe the greatest glimpse in the afterlife that we find in the Old Testament comes from Daniel. And Daniel's a, just a weird book, but at the end, there's this uh, apocalyptic view. Uh, God gives Daniel this view of things that are going to come in a long time, kind of revelation-like view. In Daniel 12, he says, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. At that time, your people, everyone who was found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. That's a cool glimpse of the fact that there's going to be some kind of resurrection, some kind of eternity that's going to work out good for those who love God and not so good for others. And then in the Old Testament, there's this really weird story. Of, of Saul going and consulting a medium. Now, now Saul, remember, he's a bad king. God has already rejected him. His spirit has left him uh, because Saul has been, has been disobedient and has dishonored God, and so he faces God's wrath. 
And this, this huge Philistine army is lined up against Saul and his army. And Saul's freaked out. He doesn't know what to do. He goes and tries to ask God for advice. What should I do? Should I fight them? Am I going to win? Should I just run the other way? What am I supposed to do here? And God is silent, not saying a thing. And Saul gets more and more worried and afraid and scared. And so finally... He asks one of his servants to go and find a medium, which isn't an easy thing to do because God has said, don't go see those people. That's a, you, do you want to be demon possessed? Cause that's a great way to be demon possessed. Like don't do that. And so Saul has banished them all from the land. And, but somebody says there's this lady in Endor, this witch who's a medium who can consult the dead. And so Saul throws on a disguise and goes and meets with her and asks her to bring up the spirit of Samuel because Samuel will tell me what I'm supposed to do. And so she does. In 1 Samuel 28, it says, And Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am greatly distressed, for the Philistines are waging war against me, and God has departed from me and no longer answers me, either through prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have called you, that you may make known to me what I should do. Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has departed from you and has become your adversary? The Lord has done accordingly as He spoke through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, to David is you did not obey the Lord and did not execute His fierce wrath against Amalek. So the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Oh, <laughs> that's scary. Saul, tomorrow you're going to be dead like me. You're going to join me here in the grave. That's a crazy story. I don't understand it completely. But is there an afterlife? Yes, there absolutely is. So what do we know? What are some things that we can discern about what comes after we die from the Old Testament? First of all, there definitely is one. There is an afterlife. We don't stop being us. Our souls don't disappear when our bodies die. There's this ugly separation that takes place that's, that's part of the fall and part of the curse where our soul is ripped apart from our body. Not forever. There's going to be a resurrection where we get a new body. And, but but that, that separation is painful and ugly. But it doesn't mean that we're done. And, and the second thing, we know that in the afterlife, we are still us. Our conscience and our, our memories and our thoughts are intact. Samuel was still able to chastise Saul, give him one last word from the Lord. And third, we see from the Old Testament that, that back then they had this faith that God would redeem and reward them if they were faithful. And I don't think they knew exactly what that meant or what that was going to look like. But from Daniel and from Psalms, we see clearly this concept of resurrection and eternal reward for the righteous and eternal punishment for the wicked. But really, it's not until the arrival of Jesus that 
that this whole question of eternity becomes clearer. Jesus came preaching a much more, much more robust New Testament theology of eternity. One of his first sermons, in, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's really good news. Especially to people who aren't sure if they're going to see God. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. That's good news. So there's going to be a heaven that I get to go to, and there's going to be some kind of reward there. That's awesome. I mean, can you see how the people that Jesus was preaching to at the time must have loved his words? Who is this guy? Who is this guy who comes preaching about being able to see God and spend time in heaven and be rewarded there? Like, what does he even mean by it? In verse, he doesn't, he doesn't just talk about the reward side of things though, right? Verse 29 of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into Gehenna. And again, if you're listening to that sermon, you got to be thinking, what does that mean? Are you talking about that place south of Jerusalem that's cursed and always on fire? Why would we be thrown there? Oh, wait a minute. I don't think he's, I think he's talking about something else. I think he's talking about like, like forever. That's got to be what made Jesus' teaching so different, so powerful, so amazing. He came talking about things that nobody else had been talking about. And he talked about them with authority. Almost as if God himself was standing there, right? Like a ton of authority. And, and for us, we're all New Testament believers. So this talk of eternity is, is normal. We're used to it. But man, back then, the words of Jesus were life-changing. Jesus said to Nicodemus, this, this curious Pharisee, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man may be lifted up so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. Even a Pharisee who was well-educated, who knew what he was talking about with the whole story of Moses and the snake and people getting bit and seeing that and living like, but what, is you, what do you mean by the Son of Man being lifted up? Jesus goes on to tell him, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. I don't think Nicodemus understood at the time what Jesus was saying. But later, it all made sense. Jesus addresses this, this hungry mob who he had just fed, right? 5,000 of them that he had just fed with, with a couple of loaves and, and a few fishes. And they, they chase after him the next morning because they're hungry again and they want more. Jesus doesn't feed them, but instead he says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. 
If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. The bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He's talking about eternal life and being risen up, and that's exciting, but I don't understand exactly what he means. The crowd didn't. The crowd didn't understand what it meant by eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and they went away confused and frustrated, but later, later they would understand. Even his own disciples, even to his own disciples, they they didn't fully get it. He talks to them about eternity and says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Man, talk about an awesome uh, promise. There's there's this heaven, this dwelling place where God the Father is, and and there's a lot of room there for all of you, and I'm going to go there and make a place for you, and then I'm going to bring all of you with me, and we're all going to get to hang out with God forever, and it's going to be great, and you already know how to get there. But then what does Thomas say? Ah, I don't know where you're going, first of all, and I don't know how to get there. Ah. (laughs) Jesus says to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Thomas was trying. They were trying to understand what Jesus was saying, but they they didn't really get it. But they would later. What What happened? What was the thing that happened that made it so that, that Nicodemus finally understood what Jesus meant by being born again? And what was the thing that finally helped a lot of those people who were part of that multitude to understand what it meant to, to partake in the flesh and the blood of Christ? And what was that thing that helped Thomas to finally get that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life? What was the event that turned the corner for them? Jesus rose from the dead, right? His resurrection changed everything. He didn't just come talking about resurrection and redemption. He he came and demonstrated those things. He came to, to be our redemption. Through His death, through His body and His blood, all of our sin is atoned for. And he showed, he proved that death had been conquered by rising from the dead. And Nicodemus finally understood. It's Jesus. Jesus himself was the one that was lifted up on that cross. He didn't come to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Now I get what he was saying. God sent his son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will get that eternal life that he was talking about. Praise God. And at least some from that multitude of 5,000 understood finally, Jesus is the bread of life. He was broken for me. His blood was shed for me. And whatever I eat and drink this, this cup, it's, it's going to be to remember what Christ has done for me. Even 
Even doubting Thomas finally got it. Even though it took him a little longer maybe than some of the others. But as he put his, his hands and the holes in Jesus' hands and, and sides, he understood what Jesus meant when he said, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. He got it. Jesus has purchased our life. Because of what what Jesus taught about eternity and what Jesus did to gain us access into eternity, we now have a much better understanding of what happens to us when we die. Paul goes on and teaches us that to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. He knew that if he were martyred, he would be instantly present with the Lord. The teaching of the New Testament is very clear. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ have passed from death to life. They've been given the gift of eternal life. We now have hope of heaven because of that. And those who refuse or reject Jesus remain in that state of sinful separation from God and face an eternity in a place that looks a lot more like that burning trash heap south of Jerusalem. So in light of that, what does that mean for how we're supposed to live? How do we live in the light of eternity? First of all, we have to prepare for it, right? we got to get ready because it's coming. Ecclesiastes teaches us over and over again that we're all going to face death. The righteous and the wicked will all one day die. We're all going to face eternity, and that eternity is either going to be one spent in the light of God's love or in the cold, dark horror of His wrath. There is no third option. In Ephesians, Paul tells us that we are all, by nature, children of wrath. That's our default setting. Sinful and prideful and deserving of judgment. But but God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. So the way that we prepare for eternity is by placing our faith in Jesus. We place our faith in in the work and in the promises of God because that has always been the way to eternal life. Not just New Testament, but Old Testament. It's always been about faith and the promises and the work of God. So the first thing that we need to do is secure our eternity through placing our faith in Jesus. Hopefully you've all done that. If you haven't done that, then let me encourage you to do that today. If you're not sure what that means or how to do it, come talk to me after the service or go talk to Pastor Fred or Pastor Allen or Bobby or somebody. We'll help. In 1 John 5, it says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. I love that verse because what it's telling you is that if you have Jesus, if you're clinging to Jesus, you can know, not just hope, 
Not just wonder, but know that you right now have eternal life. That's awesome. The second thing that we need to do in light of eternity is make sure that we don't place all of our hope and all of our dreams and all of our eternity on temporary things. Again, that's the whole point of the book of Ecclesiastes is that we don't make temporary things the whole point of our life, our God and our idol. And this life and the things of this life are given to us by a God who loves us and He wants us to enjoy those good things He's given us. And even through the difficult times, they're there to help make us stronger and to draw us closer to Him. But don't worship temporary things. That's why Jesus says it's better to just rip the eyeball out and throw it away because it's better to go through this life with only one eye and a cool eye patch than to end up in, in hell. That's why Paul says that, that the present sufferings that he's going through don't even compare. They're not even worthy of comparing to the glory that's to come. And finally, living in light of eternity will mean investing in things that have eternal significance. And Jesus says, don't store up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy. Instead, store up for yourself treasure in heaven. And what, what does that practically look like? I, mean, I think that means we spend a lot of time worshiping. We live lives where we give God glory and praise and credit. We give God our trust. We give God our life. I think it means that we tell other people about eternity. We help them uh, wrestle through that question of what happens when we die. We, we help answer that for them. We point them to Jesus as the way and the truth and the life. And I think that it means that we live these lives of sacrificial service and love. We serve God and serve the church and we serve other people. And that's the greatest commandment, right? Love the Lord your God. And the second one's kind of like it. Love others. So in light of the fact that there is an eternity to come, trust in Jesus as the only one who can grant us eternal life. And then enjoy life and the things that God gives you in this world, but don't worship those things. And then love others and help point the way to God. God, I thank you again so much for the hope that you've given us in Christ. Or thank you that you've taught us about eternity, that you've helped us to answer that question of what happens to us when we die. Jesus came preaching about heaven and about eternal life. Thank you for that hope and that confidence that we have, that we can know that we have eternal life because we have Jesus. And God, I pray that in this life as we live, Lord, we live uh, lives that are honoring and glorifying to you where we love others and point them to Jesus Christ as the way to eternal life. God, everything that we do, our whole lives, would just be glorifying and honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen.